know, in the first Sunday of the month when we come to the table, we turn our attention and, and really, uh, to some extent, the, the nature of our, our service. Uh, in our tradition, the pulpit is center. Uh, the word is central to the service, but on these first Sundays, uh, we want the table to be central. Uh, never neglecting to hear from God and his word, our, our purpose is to prepare our hearts uh, and our minds to come and to experience God's grace that he's promised to those who come uh, to the table. And so this morning I invite you to open your Bibles to uh, Paul's second letter to Timothy, uh, chapter 1, to, uh, 2 Timothy um, 1, 8 through 10, or as our previous president might say, 2 Timothy um, 10, uh, 8 through 1. But uh, our focus will be these three verses and the, the central message uh, that Paul is communicating to his protege, Timothy. Uh, but it's also helpful to understand the, the tone of, of this uh, entire letter. Uh, the letter has a, a note of, uh, of somberness to it because Paul is writing this as he is awaiting execution. And he knows that his days are, are, are numbered. And so he's writing to this one who has been faithful, been a partner to him. Uh, and yet his point is not to be share the misery, uh, but to bring encouragement and to say that regardless of his circumstances, regardless of any circumstances, God is good, and God is at work, and he is carrying out his purpose, and no matter what we are enduring, God is using us if we are trusting in Christ. Here are these words that God has recorded for us. 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 10. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before all ages began, and which now has been manifest through the appearance of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality uh, to light through the gospel. The word of our God. Let's pray. Holy God, we, we thank you for your word, which not only continually brings us back uh, for the anchor of our soul in, in Christ, his death, his resurrection, but also shows your heart, uh, your passions and directs our ways. And so I pray that as we consider this word this morning, that we might find the encouragement that Paul intended and that we might find the direction by the power of the Holy Spirit that you intend. Prepare us not only for the table that is before us, but the feast that is to come. We pray to the glory of your name and the joy of your people throughout the world. Amen. It must have been quite the conversation. Most of you uh, recognize that people tend to take note, sometimes even the media tends to take note, when people who are somewhat significant gather together for any uh, important purpose. It might be two or three world leaders that are getting together for a summit to deal with some issue between their countries or uh, worldwide problems. 
It might be a handful of scientists coming to explain a breakthrough and, and the implications that it has for a community. The reality is many of us that are sitting here today get that excited and this time of year, even when three sports writers get together to talk about the upcoming sports season. I mean, when people get together, people take note and we want to hear what's going on in that conversation. But the conversation that I have in mind is none of those and it's far more significant. In fact, it's infinitely more important because the conversation that I have in mind is between the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a conversation that uh, Timothy, uh, Paul is hinting at here in verse 9 when he says that, uh, that he gave us grace in Christ Jesus before time began. It's an allusion to that conversation that, uh, that took place before all of creation. Now, nowhere in Scripture are you going to find any specific description of that conversation. Uh, but throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see hints of it peppered uh, throughout, including this passage, which talks about God giving us something before, before the ages began. And as many of you are, are familiar with uh, the, uh, the, the passage from Ephesians 1, where Paul writes, For God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to, be, to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with the, with the pleasure of his will. And so we see these things peppered throughout Scripture about something that took place before God brought creation. And, and the astounding statement that uh, Paul is making here and in Ephesians, that God gave grace and he, he chose us before he even created us, before he even made a world. And it's an illusion to what theologians call the conversation that led to the, the, the covenant of redemption. Now, the covenant of redemption is also something that uh, is not a phrase that you're not going to find in Scripture. Uh, but as we take these little pieces that are throughout the Scriptures of that which took place before time as it pertains to us and our being redeemed uh, by Christ, we get somewhat of a picture. We get an understanding that Somehow, sometime, before God said, let there be life, before he said, let us make man in our image, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit got together knowing that they were going to create a, a world and create a people. A people after his image, and yet because we are created after his image, able to think and able to process and to have a will, we are also able to willfully rebel. He had created a way that people who were rebellious, who deserved to be just destroyed, would be redeemed and reconciled to him. Now, if you are aware of the flow of Scripture, you see that God created uh, Adam and he gave a covenant with him, and the covenant was based on this. If you obey, then I'm going to bless you. If you disobey, no, you're going to be sorry you were ever born. It's not the way it actually reads in Genesis, but it's the way I read it. And of course, our first parents, they did well for we don't know how long. But at a point in time, they decided they wanted to be like God. They were tired of being subordinate to God. They wanted to be like God, to have, be able to have all the answers for themselves and to make all the decisions for themselves. And so they rebelled against God. They sinned and they plunged all who would come after them into the effects that sin causes. God immediately promised that he was going to fix it because he'd already made this plan. In Genesis 3.15, we're told that Adam it was told that there would be one who would come, the seed of a woman who would crush the one who had tempted them. 
And the reason that God was able to do that, it's not because just God is just quick on the fly, but before all time, God had planned to accomplish the redemption that would be necessary. It wasn't just a last idea. It wasn't a patch to fix up what we had messed up. It was always God's intention to make sure that we never were taken from him. And that's an amazing, amazing thought. And Paul must think so because as he's writing to Timothy at this point in time, he's using this for this this idea that nothing just kind of happens, that God has been in control. He was in control before he made anything. And, And he this idea that God has given us grace. He's given us grace before we even existed should bring him comfort. And not only should that truth bring comfort, but Paul seems to be banking on that truth having uh, some practical effects in the way that we live our lives. First of which is that it would prevent us, or at least minimize us, from being ashamed of the gospel. Because if you look at verse 8, therefore, and he's therefore always points to what has come before, but the central thing, our identity is rooted in what God has already done for us that we read in verse 9. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. And what Paul is talking about there is this, this tendency that, you know, in one sense it seems nonsensical, but this tendency that we see and that I would bet all of us have experienced is to be ashamed or embarrassed of the story of Jesus. And on one level, somebody might say, well, why would anybody be embarrassed or ashamed of Jesus? Doesn't everybody like Jesus? I mean, I remember hearing that Mahatma Gandhi had said, this Jesus I like, it's his followers I'm not so sure about. Again, paraphrase. You know, what he'd read about Jesus, he he liked him. And even in our day, many, many people, they keep on pointing to Jesus and they, they, they challenge those who are claiming to be his followers to say, if you would just be more like Jesus, if you would just do what Jesus is doing. Uh, in other words, even the people who don't believe in Jesus or not trusting in Jesus, they, they seem to like him. They certainly want us to be more like him. And so if people like him, why would those who are his followers in any way be ashamed of the testimony of him? Well, I think that the idea that everybody likes Jesus is a little bit kind of simplistic uh, because even in his own day, they followed him and then he disgusted them. They followed him and then they would walk away. Uh, they followed him and he rejected him to the point that when he was crucified, there was almost nobody that was there around him, even though only days before uh, they had been screaming, you are to be our king. And so there's something about Jesus that is not particularly likable. And I suspect that the same issue today is what turned them against him on that Passion Week. It's because they wanted to make him king. He says, no cross, no crown. I will not be a king before I go to the cross. It's the same temptation that Satan offered him. I'll let you reign as long as you don't go to the cross. But Jesus knew, and he said over and over again, the Son of Man has come. He must die. And that is scandalous. It was scandalous in Timothy's day because it was so close to the death, even though this was probably a generation later. But to die, particularly to die on a cross, it was scandalous because it was somebody who was sentenced to capital punishment. And it was also the the curse of God, supposedly belonged to the one who was crucified, who died on a tree. And so people would have understood that and believed that. And so this preaching 
about Jesus and his morals and his ideas and all that stuff, that would have been popular then as it's popular today. But to preach Christ and him crucified as Paul was passionate about and encouraged Timothy to do, and Timothy did. It would be easy to shrink from that because people don't want to hear that. Why don't people want to hear that? Well, then, as in now. Because the reason that Jesus died is because he had to die in our place. And so if you believe that Jesus died, you believe he had to die, well, then you have to admit that you're messed up. And who wants to do that? And some people passionately, even murderously, will fight to not have to admit that they are messed up. And so the testimony of our Lord, it's not just about the things that people can accept about Jesus, but Paul was saying to Timothy, look, we were given grace before he even made us. That is a powerful reminder to us at times when people reject us for following him, truly following him. And as much as it was intended to be an encouragement to Timothy in his day, it is an encouragement to us in our day as more and more to proclaim the cross and to hold to everything that God has instructed moves us from being good people to being bigots who should be avoided. The message of the gospel, we don't need to be embarrassed about it. Because it was planned before time. It's God who is doing his work. It is God who is doing that. And it's through that that we receive grace. So Paul is comforting and encouraging Timothy and us through Timothy to remember not only do we receive grace in Christ, but God had planned it from the beginning. Somehow that's even all the more amazing grace. But along with minimizing our being ashamed of the gospel, there's another practical effect that Paul is encouraging Timothy to embrace, and God, through this letter to Timothy, inviting us to embrace. And that is, this is encouraging us to embrace and to endure suffering for the sake of the gospel. Well, that's not a particularly popular message. Not if we believe it would be something that is real. I mean, who wants to suffer? I still remember one of my seminary professors who was a longtime missionary. And he, tongue-in-cheek, said, you know, when he was talking about spiritual gifts, that martyrdom is the gift that you use only once, and so he's saving that one. And he said that when he was on the field, and in particularly hostile communities, his philosophy was this, when persecution comes your way, run, run away, and live to preach another day. And that sounded good to me. Because nobody wants to suffer. We live for comfort. We pray for comfort. We want God to intervene and to enable us to live our lives as peacefully and as comfortable as possible from the time that we became his until the time until he takes us home. And we look at other people who live their lives in that way, and whoever seems to have the least suffering, that's who we want most to be like, except to follow Christ as an invitation to participate in his suffering, to live your life following Jesus, live your life as Christ is living through you, living your life for the sake of Christ, living your life for the sake of the gospel, and a willingness to endure whatever comes your way, not only so that God would be glorified through your faithfulness to the gospel, but so that the people who would persecute you might have the hope of the gospel because you're willing to endure suffering so that they might have salvation. And so what Paul is writing here, we see in verse 8, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his, his prisoner. And Paul's saying, you know, 
usually you, it's not a feather. People, your neighbors, if you say, you know, hey, my best friend, my mentor, he's on death row, probably not going to fly well. That's kind of what Timothy was feeling. And then he moves on from, you know, the, the first part, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. It is an invitation for all who are to follow Christ to be faithful and to recognize suffering at times is a part of it. We as Americans have largely been spared from it being suffering for the sake of our faith. We all endure suffering in our lives, whether it's physical affliction or broken relationships. But very few of us in previous generations raising have experienced suffering. And the fact that it is a possibility that we can imagine now in our day or in the days ahead, it frightens us so much that we, we fight against it. And it's not that we should be indifferent to injustice that brings suffering. We need to sometimes fight those things, not just for our own comfort, but for the benefit, for the freedom of the people who are around us. But if you're going to get into the game, you're going to get bruised. We see that over and over through the scriptures. And in the world and religion, which says, well, you know, only bad people, only when you do wrong things are you going to get bruised. We, we want to avoid that because we think, you know, we want to be good. We want to be comfortable. The question is, which one is the priority? Do you want to be good or do you want to be comfortable? Are you good because you want to be comfortable or are you, you know, comfortable because you're good? And we no longer have that option. We can't control what the world outside thinks. And so to be good, your question now is, according to who? According to the world or according to Jesus? And if it's according to Jesus, then you run the risk of suffering, rejection, being fired, persecuted, jailed. I'd be remiss if I was to say and not mention that this is the very thing that many of our brothers and sisters have been experiencing throughout the world. For generations, though, we've been insulated from it. And while that part is a bummer, and again, nobody wants to suffer, and I'm not saying go out and do something stupid so that you'll suffer. And I do pray for you, and I pray that you would have comfort. And if you have affliction, I pray for you to be out of that. The only limitations I would have on that is unless God is doing something in your life. The same as I do for myself, although you'd be amazed at how often I forget that last part in my life. I'm suffering, you know. I, it's easy for me to forget to say, God, unless you're sanctifying me, you know, remove this. I'd like to remove this part. But what Paul is telling Timothy and what God is telling us through this word is that the gospel, the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ, is a message that is so great. It is worth suffering for. It is worth suffering for because it brings glory to God. It brings grace to the people around us. It brings purpose to our lives. It is what we're called to. The table we're about to come to is a reminder that he who came to redeem us suffered in our place. And so enduring suffering for the sake of faithfulness is simply being Christ-like. There's also a third, not quite as clear, practical application, but every bit as important that we take from this text that will prepare us to come to this table. But Paul's word is an invitation to examine yourself and ask whether or not we are embarrassed by the gospel message and therefore by Christ. And while it's an encouragement to be willing to embrace the inevitability and to endure suffering if it's for the sake of the gospel, Paul's also saying to us and inviting us to rest in the grace which God gave us before all ages. 
See, that's the, the point that he's making here. And, and he does so by contrasting that grace that God gave as a gift to us even before we were created. And our works, the things that we do, the things that we think determine whether we're good or not, whether God should or shouldn't accept us. And here, as in throughout all of the Scripture, not just Paul, but all of the writers, remind us that our works, which are not unimportant, but they have no or little to no value in God's economy. It is not what we do or what we fail to do that brings us in relationship and sustains our relationship with Christ. Paul says here in verse 9, who saved us and who called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before all ages began. And he continues, and which now has been manifest through the appearance of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and through life uh, and, bought, uh, and brought life and immortality uh, to light through the gospel. And what Paul is saying is, no matter what the circumstances are, we, we rest in God's grace. Whether we are rejected and despised, which leads to suffering, whether we feel like we've done pretty good, those things are not the issue. But in saying this, he's also reminding us that if what we accomplish is not the issue, neither are our failures. Because God, who is aware of all things, because he planned this before everything, he even created the world, he gave us grace. He, it wasn't like we had the possibility of it. He gave us grace. He gave grace to all who would believe and still all who are still to believe. He gave it to us. It is ours. We have it. It has us. So as I was thinking about this passage this week and thinking about how it connects to the table, I was reminded of what the apostle wrote to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, Paul wrote this, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? In other words, the elements that we partake of when we come to this table, they remind us of the union that we have with Christ that is ours by God's gift of grace that he gave us before he even created the world. And the only reason he gave it to us is because he knew that we were in need of it. And it is that grace that reconciles us to himself through Christ's body, which was broken, his blood that was shed. And we're told over and over and over again the way that we appropriate, the way that we receive this grace is simply believing that it's not about what we have done or what we have failed to do. It's about God, his promise, his faithfulness, his power, and his grace, which he extends to you. And so I invite you to come to this table if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. This table was established to connect us to that conversation that took place years and years ago. It's part of the plan because not only is it a taste of what Christ has done, it reminds us of our union with Christ, our participation with what he has done, but it also points to the end result, which is why God redeemed us in the first place, that we would have fellowship with him and a feast when he has restored all that we have wrecked. On the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took 
the bread. And he said, this is my body and it's, it's broken for you. And he's pointing to the penalty for, for sin. Somebody, you know, sin deserves death. But we can't pay the price for our sin. And so he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf and he was broken in our place if we believe. God has also said that without the shedding of blood, it's not enough that we die, but without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So we might die and pay the penalty of our sin, but there's no forgiveness unless blood is shed. And part of goes, life is in the blood. And so Christ, the spotless lamb who was prophesied in the earliest times of all ages that we see first in Genesis 3.15, right after our first parents messed up, but who was planned, we see throughout Scripture, and as Paul reminds Timothy, his coming as a spotless lamb was planned before first, however God contracted this out and spoke it and said, let's make a world. He came, and his blood was shed to pay for us. And he established this table that we would come to and regularly be renewed and, and reorient ourselves to it. We're renewed as we reorient, and we're reoriented as we are reminded and say, this is, this is the foundation. This is what it's all about. Where everything sinks or swims, where the rubber meets the road is, do I believe? God, who was holy and just, also was loving and gracious and would send his own son to pay for everything I screwed up. Do I believe that? It gives us bread to taste so that we're not just hearing it and thinking about it, but we're taste to see that God is good. And so the table reminds us that Christ was crucified. He was crushed where we deserve to be. But God's plan from all eternity was he was going to demonstrate his glory through his grace and justice. It was poured out on Jesus. And the blood that is necessary, his blood was shed. It would mark us as it did in the Passover as belonging to Christ. We come, if we believe that, then partaking of this, we are marked by the blood of Christ as we partake of this cup, which passes over our sin. But even more, the promise of God and the blood of Christ is that that blood cleanses us from our sin. And when we come in faith, thinking to what Jesus has done, reorienting ourselves to that foundational promise, God is at work. He's freeing you from the grip of the sin that you feel like you cannot shake. He's cleansing you from the sin that you try to hide from everyone because it brings shame. But he bore our shame. He has set us free. And he's invited us to taste, to participate in what he is doing, the redemption of our souls, of our lives, of our bodies, and uniting us with a living and true God. I'm going to invite Alan and Jack, if you would come forward. And I'm going to pray as they're coming. And then we come to the table. Our Father, we give thanks to you this day for your word and for this table. We give thanks to you for them because they are both the continuing expression of Christ in whom we live and breathe and have our being. In them, we are pointed to him who has loved us beyond what we can fathom. And so I pray, Lord, as we come to this table, we would do so with celebration. 
It may feel odd because we have to acknowledge our own brokenness, our own sin and waywardness to come to the table. And yet, Lord, I pray you would grant us the grace to see that your love is so great that it just covers over all of the things that we feel would bring us shame. Free us, renew us, and enable us to rejoice as we come and celebrate the body and blood of Christ, broken, crucified for us. We celebrate because death is not the end. He also rose again for our salvation. To him be all glory and honor in the church and throughout the world, we pray. Amen.